Okay, we got one verse left in Hebrews 10, and that's verse 39. The context was uh, a warning against apostasy, followed by an encouragement to not throw away our confidence to uh, do the will of God, uh, promise that the Lord is returning. In the meantime, while we're waiting for Him to return, it says that we should live by faith. The righteous one shall live by faith. And last week we went into the context for that, which was Habakkuk, and talked about Habakkuk's story and his questions and how, what God said to him and how that passage was quoted many times in the New Testament. And that brings us up to Hebrews 10 and verse 39 where it says, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, the interesting thing about these warnings in Hebrews is they're very stern warnings. For example, if we look in Hebrews 6, we have a very similar pattern um, where there's this warning about falling away, committing apostasy, being permanently alienated from God. Let me, see, let me read that. Hebrews 6 has a very same idea. It says here, in verse 4, Hebrews 6, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now that's very serious, right? Amen. Now look at what it says in verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So notice the stern warning is followed by a word of comfort um, to the Christian. And I interpret that to mean that the warning is effectual and has its intended effect. That is to keep Christians from actually falling away. Now, if we look in Hebrews 10... And we'll see exactly the same thing. Because in Hebrews 10, in verse 29, or verse uh, 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy in the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Well, the implied answer is it'll be even worse. But, notice now in our, our verse that we're studying, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith in the preserving of the soul. So, he is simultaneously giving very stern warnings, but then following that with comfort that God will indeed keep us from doing these things that we're warned not to do. Are the warnings still valid? Yes, they are. Absolutely. Do you suppose that if we did not heed the warning and went off and rebelled against God, what do you think would happen? He would discipline us, even some of us, even unto death. Okay, God would deal. That's Hebrews 12, by the way. Yeah. So we have to take these things seriously. So it says we are not those who shrink back. Now, in the case of these Hebrews who are being warned in the book of Hebrews. They were tempted to go back to temple Judaism and forsake Messiah. 
They were tempted to go back to the animal sacrifices to the high priest because that all seemed so tangible and so real. And this Messiah that they're supposed to believe in, He ascended into heaven. They can't see Him. And earlier, as we've been studying this, I made the analogy to Moses on Mount Sinai. As soon as they couldn't see Him, they made the golden calf. And so our um, temptation is to have something, want something more tangible than just faith in God whom we cannot see or having a Messiah who's in heaven. We're looking for some man or idol or something on the earth. So that's the temptation of shrinking back is to partake in something that's more tangible and more real. Now, we're going to study Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says... Faith is the evidence of things not seen. We believe in Him, it says in Peter, whom we have not seen. So, it says, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So, this is confirming the doctrine of salvation by faith, which was taught in Hebrews 10.38, My righteous ones shall live by faith. The people being addressed... By the author of Hebrews, he assumes that they're Christians and as such they're people who have faith to the preserving of the soul. They believe in God and they're trusting Jesus and His finished work. Well, let's look up some cross-references. Dan, could you look up 1 Samuel 15.11? And Dean, Proverbs 14.14. And Denise, John 5.24. And Linda, John 6. And verse 40, do you want to do one? I don't know your name. Ruby, Ruby. do you want to do a verse? It's always voluntary, okay. John 17, 12. And sir, your name? Fred. Fred. You've got Romans 10, 9 and 10. We'll stop there for now. By the way, welcome to Sunday School, Ruby and Fred. God bless you. Okay, Dan, 1 Samuel 15:11. He had repented me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Wow. So the Lord told Samuel that it, that he was he regretted making Saul king. Do anybody remember that incident? What what prompted the Lord to say that to Samuel? Remember? Yes, Denise? When he performed Yeah, he decided that he wasn't going to follow God's prescribed order and he'd do his own sacrifice rather than the Levitical priests who were told to do so. And um, this set up a, co- a confrontation and then there was another thing besides doing that that he did. He was told not to take any spoil from these Amalekites and not to spare them because these were the enemies. And he ended up sparing the best. He kept the, the sheep and the, the expensive plunder and the king because he kind of liked him. Yeah. Yeah, so he decided he didn't have to. So he made the sacrifice he wasn't supposed to and he took plunder he wasn't supposed to. And so God told Samuel what, what you just read. I regret that I made Saul king. And so it grieves Samuel and he cries out to God, but God had determined that he was going to be done with Saul and he was going to raise up a man after his own heart, which was David. David. Well, so 1 Samuel 15 is a very interesting confrontation, but here would be the case 
I know we have different people here, so I don't mind backtracking on some stuff we talked about earlier. I've presented to you my position on apostasy. And I've said two things about it. For the, pe- for the people who are the truly redeemed, God will use the warning effectually to pull them back from the precipice, or He will bring discipline, or He'll do something to keep them. Amen. All right, so they don't actually fall away. But there is a category of people who actually who do, and they are the Sauls and the Judases, of whom it says in John they went out from us because they were not really of us. But to our human eye, we didn't know the difference. Now there, and, and so there's a difference between Judas and Peter, right? Yes. They both failed, but Peter was restored, and Saul and David. It was another analogy. Now, David sinned more grievously than Saul did. Would you not say? Yes. Uh, in the scheme of, uh, of, of doing evil, he had, he had an innocent effect. Not only did he have an innocent man killed so that he could take his wife, he had a loyal soldier who was committed to David, who was willing to put his life on the line for David, and he had him killed, this Uriah the Hittite, in order to have his wife. But yet David was one who responded in repentance Amen. when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan made this little parable and then said, Thou art the man. And then if you want to see how David repented, you read Psalm 51. Now in the case of Saul, he too is confronted, even though his sin was much less. Making a sacrifice wouldn't seem as serious as having an innocent man murdered. And keeping some sheep... You know, didn't seem so bad. But yet it was disobedience to what God told him. And so when Saul was confronted, he just started making excuses. He, if, you, if anybody wanted to continue on where he was reading, he says, oh, no, I, did, I obeyed God. And Saul says, what, or Samuel says, well, what's this bleeding of the sheep? You know, here's the sheep that he took as a spoil. Ah, no, I didn't take anything. I hear the sheep. You did too take spoil. And... Um, and so they had this running confrontation. And finally, after many verses in 1 Samuel 15, Saul finally says, Okay, Samuel, I'll admit to you privately that I sinned, but honor me in front of the people. And then as they were going back to uh, Jerusalem, he set up a monument for himself. So Saul was never truly converted. He was a man of the flesh. Amen. Who was the king? But David was a man after God's own heart, and so David repented, and Saul kept on. And so, what happened to Saul eventually? He was killed. He was killed by an Amalekite that he was supposed to have gotten rid of. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next verse was Proverbs fourteen fourteen. The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied from himself. A backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. How does that work? <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't have to. You know, I could ask for hands of anybody that ever tried that. <laughs> but but a backslider in heart is filled with his own ways. What is one of God's disciplines? Gives you what you want. And then lets you get sick of it. Amen. Like the prodigal son. Yeah, like the prodigal son. 
He got everything he wanted. He wanted his, his father's inheritance, so he got it, and he went and spent it on riotous living, and he ended up in the pig pen. And his friends all left him as soon as his money ran out. And so one of the ways the Lord does discipline uh, his own is give people the fruit of their own ways until they can't stand it anymore. So that's what that proverb says. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. And it will become really loathsome to him. John 5.24, Denise. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes with him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Wow. That's a great promise. He who hears my words and believes in him who sent me as, is that what it says? Pat will pass from death to life, right? Amen. So conversion is at passing from spiritual death into life. And then what was the rest of the verse? It's my word, let's see, who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. But shall not come into judgment, but pass from death to life. So um, this is a, a promise of eternal life for those who put their faith in Christ. And he will keep those ones. John 6, in verse 40, uh, Linda. Okay. So everyone, everyone who believes has eternal life and will be raised up on the last day. Linda, do you think that that's, uh, ex- does that really mean everyone that believes? Yeah, but it, that which would be real belief. Mental assent. Yeah. So we would distinguish between mental assent that, that somebody says, yeah, I believe there was a guy named Jesus one time. That's not, you know, you know what I mean? Most people believe, oh yeah, Jesus is okay. But repenting is putting your trust in Jesus. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. So to believe in would be to put your hope and trust in and confidence in. To believe simply that, well, what does James say? The demons believe that God exists. In fact, they're even scared of Him. They shudder, it says. But if you have, if you do have this genuine faith we're talking about, then God will raise you up on the last day, according to that passage. Okay, Ruby, uh, you have uh, John 17 and verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Um, those that thou gavest me, I have kept them, and they have kept thine Okay, none of them is lost, but the son of perdition. Now, who is the son of perdition? Judas. Judas. Yeah, Judas. Judas. And so, one of the things that prayer that, that Ruby read there, uh, one of the things that's going on is an assurance that Jesus is certainly in charge. And that he didn't, he didn't fail because he goofed and he picked Judas. It, there was, the scripture was fulfilled. There, there was a necessity. Judas had his role that was predicted in scripture. And so Jesus lost nobody but the son of perdition, but that was already a foregone conclusion because the scripture was fulfilled that one of his own would turn against him. And that's quoted in the Bible. Okay, Fred, uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10. 
that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Amen. <laughs> Excellent. Believe in that God raised him from the dead and confess. A confession, the word confession in the, in the New Testament, it comes from a, a Greek word that means to say the same thing as, homologia. So confession is never private. It's never silent. Amen. Confession is something that someone speaks willingly and even in front of hostile witnesses. Amen. I quoted this last week in my sermon, but remember it said that Jesus made the good confession in front of Pontius Pilate. Amen. So when he was in front of somebody who had the power to kill him, he made the confession. And a failure to confess because you think your audience isn't going to like it is a bad thing. Amen. The Bible is against that. Now, this is an important thing in, in what we're talking about. By the way, if you missed the radio show yesterday, we were talking about uh, the Word being preached and the Gospel being preached in churches, and how in some cases it's not happening. If you missed it from noon till 2 today, a.m. 980, uh, the first hour is this Gabriella, and if you haven't heard her, you've got to hear Gabriella. She's something else. <laughs> she's, on, she's, she's passionate about her uh, concerns about terrorism. But then in the second hour, uh, Jan and I were discussing this, uh, the preaching of the gospel in churches and the teaching of the word. Now, when I got home from the radio show, I got an email that was forwarded to me that was something that was written up by a pastor in one of these secret churches that was, that maybe you sent it to me, Elizabeth. I think it did. Is that the one you sent? Okay. Uh, I could tell her computer's back working. <laughs> Anyhow, the, uh, it was basically this guy says, well, you know, these people are being critical of what, Richard Foster? Who, I don't know who he's talking about. Some of these mystics and some of this stuff. Well, if you just go ask these people, they've got an orthodox, they're orthodox, they'll, they'll bring out a statement of faith, they'll send you one. But that's the typical response, and, and I, I'm developing a strategy to refute that. And it's, and it's about this issue of confession. Okay? Having some papers in your file cabinet is not confessing Jesus Christ. Alright? A confessor is one that publicly and regularly confesses who Jesus is, whether the audience is some people that will approve or disapprove. Amen. They don't care. They'll say the same thing. That's homologia, Greek word for confession, Homos would be like homogenous, the same, and logos, word, saying the same thing. So you take a confessor, I'll, I'll explain who, an example that you probably heard of, John MacArthur, I believe is a confessor. You, I have this transcript, probably got it from you, Elizabeth, <laughs> but there's a transcript of, of him on Larry King Live. Has anybody else seen that? Uh, MacArthur on Larry King Live? Norm saw that. What did he do, Norm, on Larry King Live? Exactly. That's saying the same thing. Now, he was in a very tough situation to be doing that because there was all these people from other religions and all the other people are open-minded. 
they're all saying there's many ways to God. All religions teach the same thing, and we're we're open and to however people see fit to come to God. And MacArthur, it's like standing up like he he doesn't fit with his group. And they go to him and and they'd say, "How can you say that sincere Buddhists are going to go to hell?" And he goes, well, if they don't repent and believe the gospel, they will go to hell. And so will everybody else. <laughs> and then they said, well, how can you be so narrow-minded? He says, it's, it's not about that. It's Christ, Jesus Christ really did come. He really did die. And he really was raised from the dead. And therefore, God has made a public testimony. You've got to believe him. He kept going back to the truth. So confessing is you say the same thing. And just because you're in front of an audience that's going to hate you for saying it, you don't change it. All right? That's... That's confession. And the public and the private are the same. Now, I got an illustration. It just came to me Friday, and this is going to go into a chapter of this book I'm writing, because this, is, this one is the most powerful one I've found yet. And it was always right there. I just never realized it before. One of the things, and I just got an email. This is what made me think of this. I got an email from somebody who was upset that I had written an article critical of this Brian McLaren. And the guy said, I go to a church that's one of these emergent churches, and I'm friends with the pastor there. Why didn't you come and talk to us before you wrote the article? And the implication is, well, we know this Brian McLaren, and he's a good guy, and he really believes the truth, so you don't need to be criticizing. But the McLaren wrote a whole book telling us what he believes. Okay? And I thought, if I go talk to some other guy, and he says, oh, we know he really believes the same as we do, he's got it in his file cabinet somewhere. That's still failing this test because what you say publicly is your confession. Amen. Not not what somebody... Now, here, let me prove this. Think about this one. Let's go and think of... In fact, let's just turn to it. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to talk about making this good confession. And the the passage that Fred said that we confess with our mouth. Notice how it repeats the idea. Confess with your mouth. That means you actually say it. You don't just in your, oh yeah, I, I, you, here's something that's not confessing Christ. Oh yeah, I believe that. No. That's, uh, that's second hand. That's not the same. I believe that Jesus Christ really did live a sinless life. He really was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And he really was raised from the dead. And he is the Lord and his blood washes away sins. That's confessing. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, right? Let's look at a little incident in the Bible and think about this matter of confessing publicly and privately. But when Cephas, now that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the the presence of all, notice how he corrected him. Publicly, in the presence of all. I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? <clears throat> and so he corrected him. Now, listen to this. Think about it. 
Paul knew for a fact that Peter believed the truth correctly. Because Peter had been with Paul at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 when they decided this. The whole church had gathered, Peter, Paul, James, and the others, and they said, are we going to require these new Gentile converts to keep the law of Moses? Are they going to have to keep Sabbath? Are they going to have to follow the food laws? And so on. And uh, I think, was it Peter got up and said, why put a yoke on the disciples that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? Or was it James? Well, my memory's failing me. But one of those two. And they all agreed that that was right, that was from God, and they, they said this is, is what's, uh, what we believe, and this is going to be the standard and the practice of the church. That we're not compelling the Gentiles to follow Jewish food laws or any other thing other than abstain from fornication, things, blood, and things strangled. Alright? That's the things that they decided in Acts 15. Now, Paul knew that Peter believed that because Peter was the one in the, who was part of one of the principles who decided it. And so it wasn't, the issue wasn't Peter's private belief that privately Peter believed was right. And so what this guy was saying to me is if we can tell you that we know for a fact that privately Brian McLaren believes orthodoxy, then you shouldn't criticize him publicly. Well, Paul didn't believe it that way. Paul knew that privately Peter knew what was true. But his public, what Peter was saying through his actions publicly was the opposite of what he claimed to believe privately. And therefore, Paul called it hypocrisy and he corrected him publicly in front of everybody. Amen. Alright? Does that make sense? Amen. Yes. Then it would cover the whole scripture. Many churches today only pick out what they like. And so they don't preach the whole counsel of God, which is then not publicly stating. Right. Yeah, you confess parts that you like. Yeah. You can, and usually, the rest, you stay away from the controversial aspects. Alright, now that's also a means of not confessing. If we confess only those parts that the world approves of, we're not confessing. No. If we confess the whole counsel of God, then we're confessing. Alright? And, because then we're gonna, the, the world won't listen to us. Now, so, here's the deal. Somebody writes, I'm going to make the application now from this Peter and Paul incident. Somebody writes a book that's full of false teaching. Right? That's his public confession. Whatever's in the book. Guy, this guy wrote the book. The book is really bad. So, I write a critique of the book and say, this book's really bad. Here's why it's bad. Here's why it's not according to the gospel. Here's why we shouldn't believe it. Somebody calls me and says, no, you should come and talk to us privately because we'll tell you that guy's okay and he really believes the truth. I don't care if he believes the truth privately. Why doesn't he write it in his book? Amen. So that's great. Get up and preach it. They say, well, yeah, I believe this. Let, let me, send me a letter and I'll pull, a, I'll pull something out of my file. I'll send it to you. Then you'll know I'm orthodox. I had somebody else do that to me two weeks ago. And they sent me a wonderful document that had nothing but truth in it from one end to the other. And I said, thank God you believe those things. Now, i got a challenge for you. Preach them. Well, I never heard back from him, and I sent him another. I sent him two emails, challenged him, are you going to preach those things in that document you sent to me that's in my computer? I still can't get, get it from him. What good is it? What good is it? I can believe everything absolutely perfectly, and if I never tell anybody, it won't do them any good. 
So this is, I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm on a hobby horse here, but I'm, I'm, this is my mission from God, Dean. People that are reading the hypocrisy, they don't know what that man believes privately. They don't know what is in right. his file drawer. It doesn't know any good. Everything that every time somebody reads that book, they're influenced by that book. Right, and, and the gospel's at stake because notice what Paul said here. Uh, um, that this was a gospel issue. Verse uh, um, Galatians two, verse fourteen. Notice what he said. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Amen. He knew Peter believed it. Amen. Absolutely, Peter's belief was correct. He knew it. But he wasn't straightforward about Amen. it. And what Amen. happened was he was opposed publicly. Opposed publicly. That, I'm, this thing just came to me Friday, this application. I'm excited. I can't wait to write the chapter. Um, because that, that is once and for all puts, uh, silences those people who say, well, just talk to me privately and I'll tell you I'm a good guy. Or I believe the same things you do. It's not good enough. No. Because millions of people are hearing these things and are being lost consequent, because they're not hearing the straightforward Amen. gospel. Yes. And that's why God didn't let Moses into the promised land. As great a man as he was, our God is going to be honored. He said, I'm a holy God, and you hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, and you dishonored me. It's serious business what took place there because as a, he was a preacher, a man of God. And today, when you, you dishonor God, and God said to his believers, that's a, you're kept, but what's going to come out of you? Living water is going to come out of you like Jesus at the well. He says, woman, she says, give me some water. He says, the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. And out of born-again believers will flow living water. How dare you hold that back? How dare you dishonor God? And this living water that comes from the Holy Spirit is not tainted. It's the whole truth. Like in court, you swear to tell the whole truth, so help me God. You're dishonoring God if you don't. And these guys are dishonoring God. You don't hold it privately like Moses. You honor God before the people with living water, with the truth. And you are kept. Don't worry about being kept. Now let the water, the living water, come out of you, which is the gospel, and let it flood out and tell the world whether they hate you or not. Like Jesus, you're on the street. He was with the woman at the well, and the apostles say, you can't be talking to a woman. He just, they went around Samaria because they didn't want nothing to do with Samaritans. They were half Jew. They despised them. And Jesus talking to this lowly, supposing this woman, and taking time for, I'll give you living water. We can give the people our neighbors, our friends. We're saved. Be done with that milk. We're on meat. And giving living water in the name of Jesus Christ, it flows out of you. <laughs> okay. Don't hold it back. Say, Dan, let me talk about that Moses thing that you said. <laughs> It shows you how important the gospel is because, you know, Moses, why was Moses prohibited from the promised land for striking the rock twice? Because he ruined a type of the gospel. Because the rock being smitten is a type of Christ. And Christ is only crucified once. Okay? And then when Christ is crucified, out flows water. Right? It says in, it says in John. And when, when Moses got that wrong, it was tainting the gospel. So, yes. All right. Uh, yes, uh, I'm going to repeat that so that if anybody listening on the internet, the question was, what about our responsibility to search out the scriptures? Amen. You know, so people are telling us things that aren't true, or are failing to tell us the whole truth. We have the scriptures, right? Amen. So ultimately, uh, we used to have posted on our website some years ago an essay that was written back in 18. 
60 by CFW Walter called The Sheep Judge the Shepherds. And, and it was, it was, ba- it was based on Matthew 18 ultimately is that we are, if a false shepherd comes and leads us astray, we're responsible individually to not follow them. Amen. Okay. And to search the scriptures. Amen. Um, so yeah, we, there was, there used to be this teaching going around called spiritual chain of command. And you remember that one? And in the shepherding movement, and the teaching said, well, God works through this chain of command, and so He tells this one, and this one tells this one, and this tells this one, and whoever you're under, they're speaking for God, and whatever they tell you to do, just do it. If it turns out to be wrong, you'll be innocent, but God will judge them. Now, what kind of a teaching is that? That's, bl- that's just like blindly following right over the cliff. See, no. If they're teaching you wrong, you're not. Don't do it. Don't listen to them. I know. Well, but see that what was going on with that teaching in the seventies was it was based more on a spiritual hierarchy than the priesthood of every believer. Amen. Okay. Yeah, Keith would give you some stories on that one. All right. Well, let's get back to our. Well, Fred, you sure started us on that one. <laughs> he read a scripture, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Anyhow, good scripture. Uh, I got a few more here. Bert, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. And Barb, 1 Timothy 6, 9. And Diane, 1 Peter 1, 5. The first one, uh, Bert, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. So the summation of what we were just talking about is that our confession should be the same Amen. wherever we are. Amen. Public, private, hostile witnesses, in front of the world, in front of dignitaries, or just in front of friends and neighbors. We should have the same Amen. confession. And not, it's so tempting to tell people what we know they want to hear so that they'll like us. I mean, we're all, we all feel that way. I mean, who wants to tell somebody what they don't want to hear? Or have you ever talked to somebody about your faith? And they come and they ask this very blunt question. Are you telling me that if I don't believe in Jesus, that I'm going to go to hell? Are you telling me that? What's the answer? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's hard to say sometimes because it seems so harsh. Yes. Yeah, that's where the, the scriptures say that and I can't change it. God created the terms. Okay. He wouldn't. No. Okay. Do you have 1 Thessalonians 5 9, Bert? Yes. For God has not destined us forthright, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He, God has not destined us for wrath, I think he said, but for salvation. So that's that's another encouragement that we that we won't be destroyed. One Timothy six nine. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men and ruin into ruin and destruction. Okay, it says those who want to get rich plunge men into many foolish and harmful desires. And into ruin and destruction. Basically, as a paraphrase or 
reiteration. Now, the word want to there in the Greek, bulamai, means make it their purpose. So, the Bible tells you how you can end up being destroyed. Make it your purpose to get rich. I remember, the reason I remember that was back in the, about 20-some years ago, in the mid-80s, this stuff is still around, but you, ever, you know all these get these get rich quick schemes and guys, will, you know, they'll come into town, they'll have a seminar, and you go pay three hundred dollars to find out how to get rich so you can be like the guy. Of course, the secret is get everybody to give you three hundred dollars. <laughs> but but nevertheless, uh, I was I was studying that passage that Barb just read, and I was looking it up in the Greek, and I saw this thing bulamai, which means will or strong purpose, is a strong word. If you make it your purpose to get rich, you'll be plunged into destruction. Well, I got this little brochure in the mail for one of these seminars. And it says, I'm going to give you five secrets to obtaining wealth. Now, you had to pay to get all of them, but they give you a couple of them for free to try to entice you in. The very first principle on the guy's seminar was... You must make it your purpose in life to get rich. I just read that in the Bible. <laughs> it says, if I do that, I'll go to ruin and destruction. And this guy says, come to my seminar, pay 300 bucks, and I'll show you how to make it your purpose in life to be rich. Yikes. <laughs> so that's why it's good to read the Bible. Be forewarned. <laughs> be forewarned. Okay, Diane, you had 1 Peter 1 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Protected by the power of God through faith. So God is keeping us by His grace. So thank God for that. And we finished an entire chapter. It only took us about three months. So now we're in the Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at one of the more a very interesting and important verses in the, in the Bible about faith. Um, it says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, the, I don't like to get too technical, but I have to in this case because the there's a lot of Pages of theological material been written about just the translation of the Greek words here for assurance and conviction. And the words are very important theological words and we need to understand them. The word for assurance there, hypostasis, can be translated various ways, but I think the best uh, way is reality. The reality. Now, I think it says substance in the King James. Yes. Evidence or substance? The, 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 the assurance. Now, the word can mean different things, but some of the ways that we would look, at, look for it is see how else it's used. And it's used two other times earlier in Hebrews. So let's look those up. Diane, Hebrews 1, 3. And then Elizabeth, Hebrews 3, 14. These are two other times that this term hypostasis was used to help us try to understand it. Hebrews 1 3. 
I've got to find which one of those words is probably hypostasis. Who being the express brightness of his glory and his express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself changed our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty not. Yeah, I think that the word there that we're looking for is exact representation. It says he is the hypostasis of his nature. Exact representation. That's the same word used here in Hebrews 11.1. 1. So if you take and translate a reality, it would give you a certain idea that he is the concrete, real expression of God's nature Amen. in his own person. Hypostasis. And then Hebrews 3.14 uses the same Greek word. For we have become partakers of Christ if we then fast the beginning of our assurance Okay, there is the translated assurance. The beginning of our assurance. So, uh, I brought along some citations from really an excellent scholar. This, in the bigger context, let's just think about that now. What this is doing is, is introducing the stories of faith in Hebrews 11. Right? So, this verse... Faith is the assurance, the reality, the concrete expression of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, is introducing a bunch of examples of what that looks like. And then it goes through Noah, uh, Abraham, and these great people of faith, a whole bunch of them that we'll be studying. And so, um, what this aspect of faith is all about is that the promises that were given to these patriarchs and others were not were, were things that were hoped for, but they weren't real because of a time element. Right? They weren't real because they weren't going to be true until the future, sometimes even after their death. So, it says Moses, when he was called, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now Moses, showing this concrete, that faith is the, uh, faith is the concrete reality of things hoped for, the faith that Moses had, that God called him as a Hebrew, that God called his people, the Jewish people, the to go and inherit the promised land. That these were the people who were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who had inherited the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for Moses, if you think about this, and we'll be getting to this later, he is on the precipice of being the most powerful man in Egypt. Egypt was the most wealthy and influential and powerful nation in the ancient Near East. Amen. And Moses, all he has to do is keep his mouth shut and grow up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter and have an opportunity to ascend in Egypt and to enjoy wealth, power, prestige that is unlike anything anybody could ever experience. And all he has to do is keep his mouth shut. Right? But if he says, no, I'm one of these Hebrew slaves, 
And I'm going to serve the God of the Hebrews. And God is going to deliver us from this Pharaoh. He is going to lose everything. Amen. He is going to be poor, persecuted, a vagabond, wandering through the wilderness. Amen. And not only that, the people that he helped hated him. Amen. Okay? And so, that is given in the Bible as an example of faith being the assurance of things hoped for. For Moses, God's promise, which include not only the land, but also a Messiah, God's promise of salvation through the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was more real to him, more tangible than what was very tangible, which is the gold and silver of Egypt. He could see the wealth of Egypt. He could see the glories. It was right there. It was His to be had. But faith made the future promise more tangible. Amen. And He was willing to believe that. So faith is the evidence of things not seen. So that's, I think these stories ultimately give us our interpretation of Hebrews 11.1. 1. But nevertheless, we want to dig into this verse and make sure we're understanding it in its own right. Now, I have a bunch of, I think, excellent citations from, from a, a scholars who are talking about this. The characterization of faith that follows exposes the dynamic nature of the response to God which receives divine attestation in Scripture and that obtains the realization of promised blessing. Faith, someone says this, Faith arises when a person lets himself be convinced by God and so attains a certainty which is objectively grounded and which transcends all human possibilities. And so, uh, God really spoke to Moses and Moses really knew that this was God. These were His promises. These were His people. And this was God's calling on His life. Amen. And Moses, therefore, for him, it was... Concrete, it was objective, and he was willing to act on it. And um, this is not an exhaustive defin- uh, uh, definition of, of the term faith in the New Testament, by the way, but it's an introduction to the sort of faith that's being commended in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, here's another statement Faith celebrates now the reality of future blessings that constitute the objective content of hope. It's like communion. We're going to have communion today, so let me say something about faith and taking communion. Well, every time we receive communion in faith, it says that we remember the Lord's death till He comes. And we remember the words of Jesus, and He says, I will not drink this fruit of the vine with you until I drink it anew in the Father's kingdom. Amen. And so when we come in faith and receive communion... We are expressing a hope in something objective and concrete, but we can't see it Amen. because it's future. We believe that Jesus really will come again Amen. and that we really will be with Him in the kingdom Amen. and that we'll literally sit down at a banquet table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and everyone who was redeemed in the Old Testament. And everyone in the New Testament, and everyone in church history that was ever redeemed, and everyone that ever yet will come to Jesus Christ, 
And you saw the picture. <laughs> Remember that picture over the table that kind of goes off into ever, forever and ever and ever? And that we will drink this anew in the Father's kingdom. Amen. And so faith is the assurance of things not seen. And in this case, it's not seen because it's yet future. Not because it's non-tangible. Because I believe there will be a literal tangible kingdom and not just a mystical kingdom. Amen. And there will be a literal tangible cup. Okay. So, it celebrates now the reality of future blessings. Here's another citation. From this perspective, pistis, faith, is something objective that bestows upon the objects of hope, even now, a substantial reality which will unfold at God's appointed time. It gives them the force of present realities and enables the person of faith to enjoy the full certainty of future realization. Now, brothers and sisters, we need this. Amen. Remember what Paul said? If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. Amen. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15. That if there's no resurrection from the dead, he said our faith is worthless. Right? If all these promises are false, if Jesus is not coming again and there's no resurrection and there's no future kingdom and, and there's no eternity with God and none of these things are true, we are fools for being religious. I came to that conclusion before I became a Christian. When I was 16 years old and that pastor told me there's no resurrection from the dead, I immediately knew what to do. I went right to the golf course. <laughs> It didn't take me a week to know where I needed to be on Sunday morning on the golf course. There's no resurrection from the dead and there's no miracles and there's no promises. Then I am gaining nothing. I asked him, then why am I going to church? He says, because you're learning how to be a better person. I said, no thanks. (laughs) I think I could be a perfectly good person. I will... I know how I'll be a better person. I will go to the golf course and I won't take any mulligans. <laughs> That'll make me better. I'll keep an accurate score. When I lose the skins, I'll pay up. Exactly. That's what is, and that's what is so foolish about preaching a temporal gospel. That's this whole humanistic Seeker gospel is so silly because it's just telling people, come to Jesus so you can have a better life now. And most people realize that that's bunkum. How many of you, before you became Christians, knew people that had good lives? They were very happy. Had money, they had had things together, and they were doing decent. People just don't believe they need religion to have a better life now. So faith is the evidence of things not seen. It isn't the evidence that uh, well, I've got some. I got the goods right now on my hand. Faith it says provides the objective ground upon which others may base their subjective confidence. In other words, subjective means inside of me. The objective ground is a faith, and we can believe that our faith is grounded in God's truth and God's reality that is concrete and objective. And the only reason it's not tangible now is a time element. Amen. It's not yet. Okay. What else did they say here? Faith confers upon what we do not see the full certainty of a proof or demonstration. It furnishes evidence, that's this word conviction, it can be called evidence, 
It furnishes evidence concerning that which has not been seen. So faith is evidence. Then I've got another thing here it says. The contrast implied in the phrase is thus not between visible phenomenal world or sense perception below and the invisible heavenly world of reality above, as in Platonism. I don't know if you ever studied Plato's philosophy, but he divided the world into the, the substance of, and then the ideal unseen. Okay, Plato. But that's not what we're talking about here. But between events already witnessed as part of the historical past and events yet unseen because they belong to the eschatological future. And so, the concrete faith of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures is rooted and grounded in the historical past. Amen. Not mystical realities that are so, so, or so-called mystical realities. Mysticism has no place in biblical Christianity. Amen. And when... Uh, let me show you. Let me just think about this. When Stephen was put on trial and had to defend his faith in front of hostile witnesses, do you know what Stephen preached on? The historical past. He took the people from Abraham through the Old Testament, giving examples God did this, we did this, this person did this, and then they rebelled against him, and God did this, and then they rebelled against him, and God did this, and then they rebelled against him, and including himself as the corporate solidarity, we rebelled as Jews. And then he says, and now, finally, after all these things God did with Abraham, Moses, and David, and all the great people of faith in the Bible, now God sent his Messiah in history... And you witnessed him, and he did these things, and you crucified him. And so you've joined with all of the rebels in our own history in rejecting God's actions and God's peoples. And when they heard this, now again, what did he preach? Not some intangible, mystical anything. He preached concrete historical reality. These things happened before witnesses, really. Real people in real places did real things, including Jesus Christ. And you crucified him, and, and God raised him from the dead. And what happened? What did these people say and do when they heard this? Yeah, it says they put their hands over their ears. Ah! They got so mad, we can't, we're not gonna, they, they went screaming mad with their hands over their ears. We won't listen to any more of this. And they stoned him, they killed him, and they, while they, they took their coats off so that they'd be more free to throw their stones, and they laid them at the feet of a man named Saul. And this Saul had heard the whole sermon and he knew what Peter said. And up to that point, he rejected it. And it made him even more angry against Christ and Christians. And he went out on a, on a mission to kill every Christian he could get his hands on. And on his way to do so, Jesus Christ appeared to him. Amen. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Amen. Identifying himself with these Christians. And this Saul became Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. And he says that we don't rest on myth. He rejects myth. He rejects fables. He rejects unreality. 
But we believe in a Christ who really died and was really raised. And faith is the evidence of things not seen. We believe in Him whom we've not seen. And so this is a rock-solid, tangible faith based on the the acts of God in history and the promises of God for the future. That's what faith's all about. Amen. We're going to tie it in with the last chapter here, but the evidence of things not seen is the confession of our lives. It is observable. Right. And it is based on our faith. Right. Amen. Amen. When Paul was on trial, he said, I want you to know I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection from the dead. That's what the issue is. And then they had Sadducees and Pharisees there, and the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and the Sadducees didn't, so they were fighting with each other. And the Romans said, ah, oh, this is just a doctrinal dispute. We're not going to settle this. <laughs> but Paul was on trial for the hope of the resurrection. Well, today, this uh, sermon is going to be from Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to, it's about the peace of God that will guard your hearts and minds from anxiety. Amen. And so, that'll be... I don't know if anybody needs that, but I'll, I'll preach it to you anyhow.